I'm an alien everywhere I go, you know. I'm an alien in America. I'm an alien back home because I left at such a tender age. My interests are so varied from the interests of my peers, especially at home, especially in the village. In the village, nobody wants the village life. They've lived in it. They know it so well. And I'm fascinated by it. So they don't understand. So, yeah, I'm a village alien. He's just whacking it Welcome back to Seeds and Their People. I'm Chris Bolden Newsom, farmer and co-director of Sankofa Farm at Bartram's Garden in sunny southwest Philadelphia. And I'm Owen Taylor, seed keeper and farmer at True Love Seeds. We are a seed company offering culturally important seeds grown by farmers committed to cultural preservation, food sovereignty, and sustainable agriculture. This podcast is supported by True Love Seeds and now also you. Thank you so much to our newest Patreon members, Kristen, Alex, Will, and Jennifer. If you'd like to support our storytelling and seed keeping, you can do so at patreon.com slash trueloveseeds. This episode features Akoth Ambugo, a current True Love Seeds apprentice and longtime nurse who lives in Newark, New Jersey, and who also spends parts of the year living back home in Kenya. Akoth first visited our farm a couple years ago with her friends and True Love Seeds apprentices, Zainab and Kai. They all gardened together at Green Oasis Village in Newark, where they practiced growing food and medicine in their community garden. This year, Akoth began an official apprenticeship with us, and she brings a particular focus on indigenous seeds from Kenya on our farm. So, as usual, I'd love to hear what makes this episode special to you and to our listeners. Well, first off, of course, Akoth is a beautiful soul. I don't know what her name means. We've been talking about the meaning of names today, but it must mean beautiful soul and the way she presents particularly her her cultural seeds and the need to reestablish and to reroot her people in their traditional foods is something, of course, that I can relate with uh, wholly. Uh, I think the beautiful sort of symbolism of her growing these crops so far away from home in order to learn more from them uh, and, and in order to reestablish them uh, in Kenya you know, as a part of the common palette is is really powerful diasporic work. You know, it's the work that certainly that I feel that I'm engaged in as an African-American cultural worker. Uh, and so I see lots of similarities and beautiful connections between what she's doing. Um, and she is from East Africa. My ancestors are from West Africa. Um, but it's just really touching to see that, that the stories and the struggles and the joys um, are so similar and so connected. Uh, I remember reading recently that Kenya, I don't know how, 
how long ago this article came out, and I forget where it's from, but that in Kenya, one of the struggles is to find uh, some of these traditional uh, crops again uh, because of colonization and because of really centuries of, of successive waves of westernization on every level, spiritual, economic, and cultural. The people of Kenya, many of the people of Kenya, particularly in urban situations, have, have lost connection with their traditional foods. And so while folks, of course, still eat very African in terms of the recipes and the preparations, when one might have eaten the leaves of uh, black eyed pea as your green, now they're eating kale and collard greens. Uh, and, and those are Western greens, you know. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, in the situation of uh, African Americans here in North America, uh, you know, we have a, a similar situation. Uh, we've grown up with kale and collard greens and turnip greens and those sorts of things. Uh, but it's just very, very powerful to see, you know, her reaching back and doing this uh, for the posterity of her people. So for me, that's beautiful work, and that's why I call her a beautiful soul. So I'm going to transport you now to a cool, cloudy fall morning a couple weeks ago at our True Love Seeds farm in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. Okay, I'm really excited to welcome Akoth to the podcast. Thank you for being here. You're welcome. It's nice to get here early and, and start off the day this way. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Cold. <laughs> I know, it's late. The last day of September is cloudy, it's cold, it's early. But we're going to make this work. Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> so where do we choose to stand right now? What do you see? Okay, in front of us, we actually have a cleared row with cover crops ready for the end of the season. And right ahead of us, we have several bean varieties, actually, right? And then right behind us, we also have... Efoshoko, the beautiful Nigerian amaranth, it's in the amaranth family, and then Ewedu, or what we call a pot in Kenya. So we are right in the middle of the plants. It's a beautiful place to be. So tell us, tell the listeners, who are you and, and what, what brings you here to our farm? Okay, that's a really difficult question because I feel like I'm always evolving. It's a question I ask myself as well, like, who am I? And, ah, oh, and that's a tough one. Well, I'm going to ask this way. Mm -hmm. Where are you from? Yes. And how would you describe yourself in this moment of your evolution? Okay, so born and raised in Kenya in a small rural town called Migori, which is not as rural as my ancestral village, which is even more rural. So even though I call myself a villager, there are deeper villages that I haven't even explored. And I came to the U.S. when I was 15 years old, but I left Kenya when I was 12 years old by way of London. And then I was in the U.S., and my journey in the U.S. started out in the Midwest, in St. Louis, and then Illinois, and then Boston, then Philadelphia. And now I am in Newark, New Jersey. And what brought all of this together, like the interest in gardening, 
I grew up in a farming family and I did not like it. Up to now, I still don't like it. <laughs> the way they do it, you know, because it's so labor intensive. And then they grow foods that I don't want to play with all the time, you know. So it's mostly cash crops or it's just corn, you know. And then maybe a little kitchen gardens here and there. So the kitchen gardens always got me excited. And then my dad loved planting fruit trees, you know. So seeing those mature and then you eat the fruit, it's different, you know. So that evolved in that way but my own personal journey into farming almost began as a how can i put it i was living with a friend or rather we were in boston in college i had a professor who used he was the only black professor in the college we went to and he was vegan so he would always talk to me about all the african students that came in and that we were all slim and happy and healthy whatever that meant and then by the end of our four years we had blown out we have adopted the american diet so he was always on my case and i really didn't like him for that i loved him as a person he would have me watch videos about <clears throat> food in america how animals are raised how crops are raised it didn't connect though so fast forward post-college, I'm here with a friend in Boston and she's having physical challenges that has us questioning everything that we know about food and then tracing it back also to how we've been eating back home and then one step further to the food systems at home and how even those ones have been modified from the indigenous ways and now starting to explore okay how do we get clean food because it's a lot of money to shop at health food stores so then grow it you know so my journey began on youtube just learning how to grow foods and attempting in little garden lots so yes i came from a gardening community but i didn't do it at home so I am learning, I'm watching YouTube, and literally that's how the journey began. And every year I'm just learning more and getting better and better and better. And then in Newark now, I prayed to be in Newark, but they had adopted a lot. So I was able to be called into a space to help kind of steward it and turn it into a garden. That also, it was a big experience because that was like now the first somewhat sizable space of land that you would say I'm in control over. But because there was nobody asking me any questions, I had free reign to just experiment and I wasted a lot of seeds. <laughs> <laughs> I wasted a lot of seeds because I would just throw seeds. Oh, and, you know, I think at the time I was listening to the Japanese natural farmer, Fukuoka. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just the idea of spray them and they will grow. And I would throw the seeds because I was getting them for free too. And they didn't grow. <laughs> and then I met our friend Zainab, who had already begun their journey in seed keeping. And I think they were really trying to get me to understand these things. But it, like when you're not in a space, it's just not there. You know, at the same time, 
interacting with my friends at Rabbit Hole Farm and them they are like a cot. Why are you so focused on growing vegetables and stuff? The weeds will feed you. You know, so I'm also learning about wild foraging and the essence of growing food. So everything is shifting in my brain. Why are we so focused on production and what are the different ways that we can feed people? So it's a lot. But I hope that brings you to where I am now. So where I am now, I would say I'm gathering skills that I think are valuable to take me on to my next journey. And seed keeping is one of them. And growing food is one of them. So yes, I love the weeds, but I also want to grow food that the majority of the people will eat. (laughs) (laughs) And where does your journey take you in the world? The journey takes me to rural spaces and specifically my rural African home which it could be my mother's village or my father's village because a lot of our people grow everybody grows corn everybody grows beans but we are losing our ancient grains we are losing the native seeds and not only the seeds but the stories behind the seeds the ways of preparing the foods and also the skills that the communities had because we are so dependent on this production production mode without understanding the full scope. And my people don't have food right now, which this is Africa. The sun is shining, you know, 360 days out of the 365 days, the weather is right. Yes, climate change and all of its effects. But my journey takes me back there and putting all of these skills together so we can work together so we can feed ourselves like there are so many other issues to tackle but I don't think you can do it on a hungry stomach so we are, we want to get the people fed awesome I'm going to ask you more about that mm-hmm. after we talk about some of these plants and some of these plants in this field are some of those indigenous mm-hmm. vegetables from Kenya correct yes absolutely You want me to mention a few of them? Yeah, let's visit them and talk to the plants and learn about your relationship to them. Okay. Apot, Ewedu, Molochia, Corcorus, Olitorius. Right now we are here with Apot, which some people call Egyptian spinach, other people call in Nigeria Ewedu. But it's a crop that's found all across Africa, all across the Middle East, and probably Asia, mm-hmm. Southeast Asia. And right. I know that it, you know, Kai's people grow it in the Philippines, mm-hmm. our friend Lan's people grow it in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So, and that's also, I think that's another beauty of actually learning you know because for instance the apoth that we have here it's like what how would you call that like nine or ten feet nine or ten foot growing this vegetable at home so it's the first vegetable we are introduced to eat as children every time my child is weaned from the milk 
this is the first vegetable that they would be fed you know it would be a pot with ugali which is the starch in most of our meals and i have never seen a pot taller than my hip hips which is like what three feet and here i am and they're growing up to 10 feet so that was the first time i saw this plant grow to this level and so what am i trying to say about that i'm just amazed because we harvest them so young because we cook them yes but the potential to see it grow full season just blew my mind away you know and it gets me very excited this particular one it's the one with the spiky not spiky jagged edges right so we don't grow this specific one i have seen this one in kenya in western kenya so i know it's a seed that we carry at home the one that we do grow is more shiny and the leaves are a little bigger and the seed pods also not as tall as this one so this is one vegetable that i love to eat it with this other dish called omena so omena like little little fish fishes kind of like anchovies but not so salty because they're from a fresh fresh water lake victoria so we eat this and the sauce and the ugali and my dear you have nutrition you have deliciousness yeah <laughs> oh it's a plant i'm very happy to see you know and especially because this is not the natural climate that you know you would think some of these seeds grow in but just to see how much they have thrived i've also planted a pot now with seeds from kenya at my friend's backyard that i turned into a garden this season i planted them later because this is when i came back in around may so we are not going to get seeds from them but the same they, they've grown up to about 10 feet you know some of them so just that short window in a climate that i would not associate with growing you know a pot and seeing it flourish so much it gives you hope because i think as an immigrant that's some of the thing like food is a very important thing that keeps our connection to our culture our lands and our peoples so to be able to grow it yourself is amazing before i used to buy it in middle eastern and west african grocery stores but it was ground up and packaged so not the same it was dried no but frozen yeah frozen yeah yeah yeah, these are so tall because we're seed keepers. Mm -hmm. We haven't eaten any of it. <laughs> I, I was tempted. I was definitely tempted. Every time we come here, I'm like, mm, they're in the perfect stage <laughs> to harvest them. You talked about preparing it with the small fishes from the yes. fresh water. Yes. And with the starch. Can you describe a little more of the recipe like the preparation how you cut it how you cook it what are the other seasonings and what is this starch oh okay so 
because I know different people prepare it differently. So the way I saw my mother prepare it and a lot of other women prepare it, there's different ways and I'll sh share for you the one that I like the most. You, when you get their seeds and they are somehow, you can cut them, but I never saw my mom cut them. She kept the leaves whole. We don't eat the seeds, we just eat the leaves. And she would boil water, bring water to a boil, and not a lot. So bring water to a boil and we would put some magadi soda or baking soda. I don't know the purpose of this. I don't know if it was to make it draw even more or if it was to soften it. I need to find that one out. But she would put a little magadi soda. Do you have an answer? And by, by draw, you mean make it more slimy? Yes, make it more slimy. And, and tell, me, tell us what a poth means. A poth means, like direct translation, it just means I'm soft. A poth, like I'm slimy. You know, <laughs> that's me saying direct translation. <laughs> <laughs> and this is Luo language, by the way, because in different parts of Kenya, they'll call it different, differently. So like Swahili, they call it mrenda. Um, so in Luo, we call it apoth. And it means I'm slimy? Like well, it's like the plant is talking? That's my interpretation of it, because <laughs> literally, I apoth. Like, we don't say it apoth, but I can refer to myself right now and say, I'm slimy, like apoth, you know? <laughs> so and that's the name, apoth, and it is slimy. So I'll need to find out that one for you. But me, that is my own interpretation of it, okay, my people? You'll just have to take it as it is. <laughs> but um, preparation. So we put the magadi soda in the water and then with a little salt, bring it to a boil and put the vegetables in and then let it boil until the water covers it. And once the water covers it, you, you, you stir it consistently and this breaks it down a little bit. Okay. So you have it just like that. And then your stew, whether that's fish or meat or the little fishes, the omena, how you prepare that sauce is entirely up to you. But that's the savoriness. So you don't do much to make their pots extra. Mm -mm. The soup is the one filled with spices and seasonings. And then the starchy meal is called ugali. Ugali is made from traditional grains, like the traditional ugali, which in some West African countries they call fufu. You go down to Southern Africa, they call it pap. So there are different ways for the main starch that feeds a lot of African peoples. So ours traditionally is made from dried cassava. So it's made into flour and millet or finger millet and sorghum all ground together traditionally where we live we have a lot of rocks we would go and grind them with our hands on a stone and you're doing the motion I'm, now I'm doing, almost the mo I'm doing the motion okay i didn't do it a lot growing up my grandmother did it with peanuts and things like that and can you describe the motion you're doing the motion is like <laughs> <laughs> you can tell I'm not very... Okay, let me put my brain together. So my hands are made into a fist of sorts. They are right in front of me. So I'm imagining, I'm imagining holding a stone. 
okay the stone would have a smooth flat surface at the bottom and the stone that had the grains would be flat and large and now you're just using this stone in a in a forward and backward motion like you're grinding the two stones against each other does that make sense mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that was the grains but now we have portion mills you just take it it's done hmm. yeah what do you mean we don't do it manually anymore so you collect your grains the sorghum millet cassava another ugali we have is made from corn or we call it maize maize which maize has replaced a lot of those indigenous grains because number one they are smaller they take more time so corn just corn is king <laughs> corn took over <laughs> but a pot is really delicious with the traditional ugali because it's also softer than the corn so together when you eat it you don't even need to chew it you can just mm, mm. swallow it nigerians call it swallow <laughs> <laughs> mm. thank you for that you're welcome it's one of my favorite meals so before we leave this patch yes <laughs> i know you this is one of the crops that you've adopted as part of your apprenticeship yes. and you have been harvesting all of the seeds of it mm -hmm. with help from some other people and you've mm -hmm. developed a method that works for you can you describe how you've been harvesting them oh yes because well how do I describe it? This is what I do, because I like to get every single seed and they grow from the lower stock all the way up and there are so many of them and they are packed closely together. So I like to put my head right in the middle of the plants. You want me to show you? Yes, please. Okay, let me just do it. <laughs> I put my head right in the middle and I begin from the very edge. So really, I would be beginning here. So I don't miss out, okay? From this angle, the plants, like the stalks are pretty steady. So I'm not worried about harming them. And I can see, right? You can see right all the way down, Owen, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that is the mathematics behind this. <laughs> and then with this clipper, I, some of them are easy. I kind of bend them, yeah, without pulling them. You see, like this one, sometimes you can pull too much that the you 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 rip the stem. You rip the stem. But yes, I create this space so I can see. And then I just go off and work each plant steadily all the way to the end. It's very methodical. Like that one, it's a little green, but I still take it if it's like 99% done. Do you approve? I approve. <laughs> <laughs> my people, you also have to realize I'm also learning these things because when I saw my mother harvesting them, most of the time they were already split and most of the seeds had fallen off. You know, so I'm also learning when are the right times and 
Well, I imagine that worked for her, because how many seeds does one person need? And for us, we're saving for hundreds and hundreds of people. For hun that is very, very true. That is very true. But it's a science, you know? It's, 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 there, there is, no, too little. There's, there's technique to it, and I think the more you do it, of course it's different when there's a camera in front of your face. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being more methodical. But, um, yeah, I've found this to work very well. Just clipping them. Wonderful. My last apoth question. Yes is I would like to walk to the other patch okay. down the field. Mm -hmm. So this other apoth, also many people listening will know it as Malachia, the Arabic name. This one is from Cameroon. Mm -hmm. It looks like it's very not happy with the cool nights. Mm -hmm. starting to curl up its leaves, but they're, they're shaped differently. Yes, and some seeds are ready. Yes, and our first seed harvest is here. When you were describing the one from your home mm -hmm. as being shinier, without the jagged edges, and with shorter seed pods, I was thinking of this one. Mm -hmm. Does this mm -hmm. one look closer? Very close. I would say this is it. It's just that I don't know if the nutrients in the soil just makes the plant more vigorous you know the leaves are definitely bigger mm -hmm. but this is that plant mm -hmm. this is that apoth and maybe i'm just seeing it to its full glory because of the care and the water that it's been getting because i know depending on the nutrients the plant gets it can dwarf or thrive right when i interviewed anan zar for this podcast she was talking about the same thing because she gave us our palestinian Malachia seeds mm -hmm. and she said they look totally different in our field than they do back home. Yeah, so that's another thing that I think just we are keeping seeds but we like it's all interconnected you know the soil the nutrients everything is in check and it works together to give you really high quality high quality seeds <laughs> and plants <laughs> if we were to eat them. I'm <laughs> eating um, by the way I like to eat them. I do too. Mm -hmm. But it's also just humbling to see how many seeds, you know, they produce. Which at home, if you go to buy seeds, you don't find a lot of seeds. Like, especially for the native vegetables, when you go to the market, right, in the grain section, they'll have, there's always a variety of beans because we eat beans. But for the native vegetables, you'll find a very small section with little, little containers with their seeds in comparison to everything else. So I think just learning that A, it will require patience for them to mature and get the bountiful harvest of seeds will be a tricky thing to convince my Kenyan people. But one that I'm determined to do. <laughs> <laughs> How will you convince them? I'll just have to fence that area off mm -hmm. and put a dog there <laughs> or some turkey or something. <laughs> but people are respectful of each other's spaces. I think when you have a space and it's fenced off, you pretty much have control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So you're going to introduce seed keeping with indigenous vegetables. Yes, with indigenous vegetables back home. So in that mix, we have a few of them here. So the apoth or Egyptian spinach or ewedu, the cowpea or bo, we call it bo, which is a bean. We don't eat the beans, but we eat the leaves. There's another one called chinsaga, which we also grew and I had the pleasure of harvesting. I think today I may get to work on the seeds. So the deck is another one. And then there are a lot of vegetables that I grew up knowing about, but I didn't consume them that much because the, the seeds are lost. So retracing them as well and finding communities that still grow them and bringing them back to our tables. Have you started that process at all? Yes. What does that look like? It looks like going to the villages and sitting down with my elders and asking them a lot of questions and a lot of surprise from them because they don't understand why a young person who has studied, you know, very complicated things is coming back to sit down and share and want to know these stories from the elders. Most of the time they don't understand it, but I think the conversations are very very important so it doesn't start off with me saying hey i'm doing this you know it's like no what are you already doing you know and it also means traveling into many many rural spaces which i love rural spaces because the people are humble the people are joyful and the depth of knowledge is it's beyond me, you know. Yeah, the depth of knowledge is beyond me. So paying, paying, paying rural people respect, that's what it looks like, you know, just honoring what they know and allowing them to teach me and then creating these spaces where they are doing them, yes, but now with the added knowledge from these experiences to do them in a way that now will keep these seeds going so we don't lose them. What is one conversation with a village elder that really stands out for you where you learn something new? Oh my goodness. I was home. I have many friends, you know. I go back to my mother's village and my father's village and number one, I left when I was so young, so they're really surprised that I still know the language and I can talk with them, you know. So this one experience was just from an elder. It was this couple, a husband and a wife, and their trade was making rope from sisal, where we grow sisal at home. And do you know the sisal plant? So you know burlap. Mm-hmm the ones for the coffee, it's made from sisal. And sisal is in the cactus, should I call it the cactus family? 
it has a big imagine an aloe vera leaf but bigger and more fibrous with a thorn at the very tip that's very sharp and it grows big if it's in the right space and it shoots up tall like I would say more than 20 feet the flower yes the like it has a middle stalk that goes all the way up does it look like asparagus no because <laughs> asparagus looks like bushy right no <clears throat> when when the what kind you eat like when it's young does it look like a young asparagus not at all think of aloe vera mm-hmm. think of an aloe vera plant but bigger but then one a tree stem in the middle of it going all the way up but just a single stem going all the way up just chiming in here to say that asparagus is in the eye of the beholder sisal is called agave sisalana its scientific name and it's actually in the asparagus family like other agaves so there you go back to the story so this particular couple that was their trade they harvest the cactus and then this was the f- I knew people make rope from cactus I just did not know how the process was and then on a tree they have this makeshift very well engineered thing that they would use to scrape off because you have to scrape off the fiber away and what you're left with is this ropey textured single stranded fiber that then they weave to make the rope and a lot of other things so on this particular day i just went there on my random tours i don't let anybody know that i'm coming i show up and it's husband and wife they're there by this tree i'm like what are they doing by this tree so i go down and i sit with them and they just start talking to me they didn't know who i was but i told them who i was and then i asked them if they knew my grandparents and they started telling me stories about my grandparents that none of my mother hasn't shared with me. My dad wouldn't know because they all live home young. And so they are telling me the stories of my people that I would never have known, you know. So, for instance, my mother's father, he was telling me my mother's father, the home was always, their home was always open. It was the one home you could go to. No matter what, whatever they had, if it was water, you would drink that water with them. You know, if it was porridge, you would drink the uji or porridge with them. Whatever they had, they would share with you. So the, he was known, that the family was known as just being very accommodating. And so you start to see those things linger, you know, in the generations that follow. But to meet elders who interacted with these people in their prime, it was so beautiful. So he would share stories about my grand, because my mother's home and my father's home, they're not so far apart. He would share stories as well about my grandfather. I'm yet to catch stories about my grandmother from my, my dad's side. I never met her. Those ancestral stories, for me, you know, it begins there. 
because the seeds and their people, you know. So, <laughs> nice. knowing about these people, the lives that they lived, because things are changing so rapidly, and at the same time, in rural spaces, they remain the same, in a way. So they are changing. The people are changing. The way of doing things are changing. But there is also a lot of retained knowledge. Mm-hmm. I love to picture you just showing up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> literally, I just show up, and we just begin. Like you can't, you can't. What do you call it? You don't organize it. You know, you just show up and you be with the people. So a lot of it just requires surrendering too. You surrender, and the story finds you along the way. Yeah. That's powerful. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Oh, look. look, I, I, look. Oh, yeah. Vulture. That that's a vulture. A vulture. A turkey vulture. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, this morning I saw maybe 10 or 15 of them circling together up there. Yeah. So they probably saw something. They probably found prey. Besobela. Ethiopian holy basil. Ochimum specie. There are so many things that we don't consider food and we don't keep seeds from at home, but we use for medicine. So like, this is the holy basil from where? Ethiopia. Ethiopian holy basil. We at home have literally counted, just walking randomly, about eight different varieties, maybe more, of holy basil and other plants in the mint family. I'm going to collect them and save seeds for you because those are things that growing up, they were everywhere. But with development happening, we don't even think twice about them. But what I do remember we use it for, if you have stomach upset, you'd be sent to get a variety of the holy basil and you'd make medicine from it by pounding it, mixing it with water, and you drink it. You know, so all to say that we are losing a lot of important and vital seeds and to see that they can be grown and also just learning about the process of their seed stages and their journeys is really beautiful so that's the only thing i want to mention about the mint family and it's the same with um wakatai tajetes minuta this one when if you had a chicken coop and every once in a while there are these little crawling things that stay in chicken coops that are horrible because they are so tiny if their coops got infested with those I'll call them chicken fleas. (laughs) We would get these. And I don't know if we would dry them and burn it in there or use them to kind of sweep the area or lay them there because they would deter them, you know. But now I can't remember the last time I saw this and it was just growing in the wild. Nobody cultivated it not for seed Mm-mm. why is it disappeared land is getting developed for many 
different reasons. So some wild spaces are being used to cultivate cash crops and the cash crops right now in the specific region of southwestern Kenya that I'm speaking about, um, my people went through a period of growing, we always grow corn, but then we went through a period of growing tobacco for the British Tobacco Company. We went through a period of growing sugarcane. So large parcels of land were all turned into monoculture systems. Mm -hmm. So we lost a lot of these plants. Right, so you don't just lose the traditional vegetables in that process of monoculturing, you lose the traditional wild plants. Yeah, mm. and the animals in the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you call this plant? Do you know? No. Mm-hmm. I don't know. If someone said to go get this for the chicken coop, what would they say? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm not lying. <laughs> but I saw it and I smelt it. <laughs> and it is, it is that, you know. So now I know, you know, like now I know. I know what to ask. This is a Peruvian plant, but I had years ago seen articles about it being used, and I don't remember which part of Africa at this point, because it's been so many years, Mm -hmm. as a dye plant. Yes, I remember you shared that article with me. Oh, did I? It was Kenya, I think. Oh, was it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. And I know uh, um, Zainab just tried to use it as a dye plant, and it was awesome. The The bright yellow, mm -hmm. yellowish green. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. It has tips that almost look golden roddy, but not nearly as yellow. Oh, golden roddy. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> they're a little more pale. They're a little more pale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like the more they are, you know, because they have the yellow flowers. So you get that at the very tip. So I can see where you would get the, mm-hmm. the nice dye. Mm-hmm. Spilanthes, toothache plant. Achmela oleraceae and other Achmela and Spilanthes species. There's another plant you pointed out to me that I didn't, didn't realize you used medicinally in mm-hmm. Kenya until this morning. Do you want to mm-hmm. talk about that one? Which one was I? The toothache to? plant. Yes. So the toothache plant, we. Polasantis? Oh, we call it Spilanthes, is its genus, yeah. It's the genus. This plant is very, very powerful. At home, they grow... So, they're very small. The ones here, I'm sure there are so many varieties, but everybody knows it as literally just the toothache plant, but in my language, we would say Yadlak, which is medicine for the teeth. So if you were, if you had a toothache, they would just go look for it and you chew it. And that was the end of the process. I don't know anything else besides that. I, you, it's again one of those things I used to see a lot growing up. But now I don't see it In the so wild. much. Yeah. In the wild. So this, this is two types growing together actually. One we got from our friends from Burma, the Karen farmers. Mm-hmm. And that's the one you're eating now with the smaller center with these ray florets almost like a sunflower Mm -hmm. and then this one here which is from brazil Mm -hmm. which is the more commonly grown one in the u.s for medicine Mm -hmm. has a much larger 
center with no ray florets, mm -hmm. just looks like a cone. And this one has a bullseye with maroon and yellow, mm -hmm. but a lot of people grow just the yellow one. Mm -hmm. um, and you're saying yours that grow wild in Kenya are even smaller than the ones from Burma? Mm -hmm. They're much smaller, very, very small. And I've never seen them grow. Like these, some of these are a foot and a half, maybe even two foot, right? Mm -hmm. They're lower to the ground. Mm -hmm. Again, that could just be because the soil here is prepared for them. Um, but it's one of those that everybody knows pretty much you have a toothache. You have to go scouting around because nobody's planting it. Mm -hmm. Yes. I looked it up when I was trying to identify the species of this one. Mm -hmm. that, that, you know, and I, I don't know that it's from Burma, but mm -hmm. the people from Burma that we know found mm -hmm. it to be the closest that they could find to their native one. Mm -hmm. And so when I was trying to identify it, there were dozens and dozens of species of Spilanthes. Mm -hmm. So it seems like it's all over the place and has so many ways that it looks. And But they're generally mouth-numbing. Mouth-numbing. So pretty much across the board, you're finding out that it is for that purpose. That's what I've heard from the people who use it in different parts of the world. I don't know if there's some that are less mouth-numbing. This one is supposedly less ma mouth-numbing mm -hmm. because they grow it not for the medicine but for the, the leaf. They eat the leaf. They eat the leaf, both raw and, but mostly sautéed, I, I understand. The Brazilian ones or the Burmese one? The one that's closest to the Burmese one. They, they'll eat the leaves of the Brazilian ones too before they found this one. So they approximate with the Brazilian one and then go trying to get closer and closer to their native Spilanthes. That's amazing. <laughs> that's really amazing. Like, for me, that's what fascinates me too, is how the variety, you know, and I'm eating the leaf too, because once you tell me I can eat it, I will eat it. <laughs> um, but the variety of ways that different people from different places use these plants just fascinate me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one thing, the first time I saw someone eating bean leaves was a, mm -hmm. a man from Kenya, mm -hmm. for example. Like yes. we think of beans often as just the seeds or the pods. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> and actually I've, I've met people from Burma who also eat the leaves, but it's a relatively new idea to me. Yes. I'm wondering if we could go go see your bull. That would be great. Let's go. <laughs> bull. Field pea. Cow pea. Vigna unguiculata. So, I have a story about this one. Because these seeds was given to me by my friend Regina. Regina is from Kenya and she is from the Kisi land, which is, they call it the Kisi Islands. And that region, they are known for growing and eating their, the, these traditional foods than many other societies in Kenya. So I asked her about the seeds. I brought some from Kenya, but then she also gave me some. Okay. She's had hers for 10 years. She's been keeping seeds without knowing that she was a seed keeper for 10 years. And then I got these from the market. I got them from the market in Kenya, in Western Kenya, a town called Busia at the cereals market. 
cereals, grains, beans at the cereals market. And these ones, we eat the beans for them when they're still very young and tender. So like if you come closer... You mean the leaves? Mm-hmm. If you bring this, the camera to the leaf, you feel that? That's a little mature. And then, I don't know if you can tell the difference. There is a difference in the audio. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 young ones are high pitched. Yeah, they. <laughs> but they are, you know, they are really really nice. So again, for me, this is my first time. You could say this is my first time growing them for seeds because I was just used to eating them, and we would start at this stage. We would start harvesting them for food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is our second planting. Because yes. we harvested them really early. Mm-hmm. They were an early seed crop. Mm-hmm. And we had the idea of just replanting them in the same spot to mm-hmm. see if we could get a second one. And it's looking like it might happen for yes. some of them. For some of them. And this is pretty far along, you know. It's far along in its seed development. You can tell that all the pods are in and developing nice and thickly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> One question, Regina, right? Yes. Where Regina. where does Regina live? Regina lives in Princeton. Okay. And she has a little community plot. Uh-huh. So New yeah. Jersey. New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Yes. And pretty much a lot of Kenyans in America will grow this because it's abundant, it's quick to grow and disease you know, not a lot of pests like beans. It's true because it's a cow pea or a, what we call a southern pea or a field pea. Yeah. Vigna unguiculata is the Latin name. And while we get a lot of bean pests on the American species, yes. Phaseolus vulgaris in particular, which I know is also eaten, at least the man I met, Joseph Mbura, yeah. was growing that for the leaf too. Yeah. This one really rarely is eaten by insects or getting diseases. It's an African species. And then that's another thing that I'm learning, Owen. Like you see, there are about three or four different species that I would, I call the same thing and I would eat all of their leaves. I know of white ones. These ones are red and even a black one. Hmm. And we all eat the leaves and we call all of them ball (laughs) how do you decide which color to plant it doesn't matter i have fallen in love with the red ones because the leaves are bigger okay so i don't have to spend a lot of time harvesting (laughs) they grow faster and then yeah i guess i have to grow all of them side by side to really compare yeah but I like the red ones, they're proliferous. So if you see them in the market, the seed, mm-hmm. or even the leaf, mm-hmm. there won't be a differentiation between the varieties. In the taste, no. Or in the name? No. Awesome. So this doing seed keeping allows you to go a step deeper, actually, because for now it's important for me to know, because maybe I had this generic name, but they're more specific. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How will you find out? Ah. (laughs) Science, technology, my friend. I will call Owen.
<laughs> but seriously, I feel as though, especially in the Bean family, they are well documented, you know. So maybe culturally, we just had a general name, which it may mean this grew in a different region, and so they had a different name for it. But then the scientific names, I can the internet. After you introduced me to this bow, mm-hmm. I looked oh. it up. <laughs> tell, say how, tell me how you say it. I know I always say it wrong. Uh, Owen says bow. <laughs> me, I say bow. Uh-huh. Okay. After you introduced me to it, <laughs> I looked it up and found many articles about this plant in Kenya uh-huh. uh, as an important indigenous food crop that's uh-huh. essential for the health of the people. Yes. And I saw suggestions that it be preserved during, you know, for the dry season or whenever it's not able to be grown. Can you, do you know anything about that and how it's preserved sometimes? So how we preserve them, they are, hold on, I'm not getting your question well. You mean preserving the seeds or preserving the vegetables to be eaten in the dry seasons? Preserving the vegetables. Oh, so different methods of preservation. People blanch them and then dry them. So blanching, drying, and then just reactivating it in water um, before eating. And we do that with uh, quite a few vegetables, not just the bo. With the apoth, for instance, the Egyptian spinach, they dry it into a, they dry the leaves and into a powder. So I know of regions in Africa that cook it from the powder. How does it look if you were to see people drying these plants? So it looks like this. Once they are blanched and dried, they're a deeper green, kind of like tea. Imagine green tea, the leaves. Yes. And then imagine soaking them in water and just watching them bloom. Mm. Put that in your mind. It's there. (laughs) And are they dried with the sun? Yes. Often under the shade, but on a hot day. And Kenya, where I'm from, it's dry heat. So things, they don't need to be in direct sun to dry. You can dry them under the shade. Mm -hmm. Uh Thank you. (laughs) Let's go look at the dried beans. This one is bo. You're good at this audio thing. <laughs> Let's hear from the the bow. Those are all the seeds. There's, there, I would say there are hundreds. Oh yeah. Thousands. Maybe thousands. Thousands. That's just from how ma- how much did we grow? Like a handful. Not right. Even, just right? maybe 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 thirty plants. Yes. So this is, beans are generous, but this one is very generous. And this is the purple, uh, how would you say this color? It's a... It's like a, it's a red. A red. It's like a, like a soft red, mm-hmm. pink almost. Mm-hmm. And the pods are purple. Yes, they're beautiful. Do you ever eat the seeds of these? I've never tried it. I've only ever eaten the, the leaves. So now I'm very curious to eat because when you go to the market, they it's not sold in plenty. 
at least my market you know there are many markets but in my region it's not sold so much but i know some communities eat the seeds us we mostly eat the leaves so when you say you eat beans a lot which ones are you talking about i'm talking about mung beans you know the mung beans the green ones yeah we eat mung beans kidney beans black beans there are yellow beans gray beans so many other types of beans that we consume in our diet yeah that's different from these ones and those ones we don't eat the leaves because the texture they are rougher yeah so this is the only one I know where we eat the leaves. Pili pili, apilo, peppers, capsicum specie. This is actually a pepper that is familiar to you. Not this variety. This is the piripiri. You call it piripiri. As we call all peppers pili pili. All of them we call pili pili. So, or in my in Lua we say apilo. The ones we grow at home. These are ground peppers. The ones we grow at home can grow to be about even taller, Three even feet. my height even. Mm. But it's more like a, a little bush. And the peppers are very small, maybe an inch in height and very tiny and very hot, mm. very hot. How do you harvest and prepare them? How do we harvest and prepare them? We we are not crazy Kenyans, and I won't speak for everybody, but our family now, we... My brother is crazy for peppers, but not everybody else. So when you're ready, like once a whole branch has ripened, you'll find we can cut it and just hang it upside down until it dries. And then when we are eating, whoever wants the pepper will just take one and just put it in their meal. Like crumble it up? Yeah, crumble it up in their specific dish. Mm -hmm. So we don't do like mass processing or drying of peppers to preserve in powder form or in dry state. However, I was an entrepreneur when I was a little girl, I think either seven or eight years old, during the mango seasons, the green mangoes or before they are ripe, like in between that space, Mangoes are very delicious and at home we eat them with pepper and salt. So it was my job to collect the peppers, dry them, grind them up together with salt and I would sell them. So that was my first business. How would you um, get customers? What would you say? Hey, I'm a businesswoman. <laughs> I didn't even need to convince people to buy my produce. My face is enough of an invitation. You know, I bully them into buying. If somebody, if a child is walking and I see them looking at me and they're with their parent, I'll be like, just buy them the thing. You see, they want just and then, yeah. <laughs> and then they're just typical things that we, they're like snacks, you know, so people buy. <laughs> I like to, I wanted to imagine you singing some kind of song about mangoes or something. <laughs> No. <laughs> <laughs> is this pepper closer to the one that you grow? It's short, but is the fruit closer? The fruit, yes. In terms, it's not as thick as the other one. So it's narrower. Mm -hmm. It's about an inch long. 
So I would say the ones we grow are like this. Okay, so that actually looks like half an inch, pretty short and thin mm-hmm. and red. Yes, but now all of them will be like that. Chinsaga, Dick, Cleomi, Ginandra. Well, this is one right next to you, this harvest of the... Dick, Chinsaga. Chinsaga in Kisi, but in my language Luo, we call it Dick. There's a flower here that it looks like it's in the family. What's the name of that flower? Cleomi. Cleomi. Yeah, so actually the first time I saw Cleomi was at a nursery somewhere, and I almost bought it thinking it was this, but there were just obvious differences. You could tell they were in the same family, but not the same plant. The leaves are very tiny, and we eat them. They are very bitter. It's a bitter vegetable. And different communities eat it differently. Like the Kisi community, the guy who gave you the seeds, they just plant a lot of them, and then they thin them out so they start eating them when they're really young and they just saute them and they mix them with things like kalalu or amaranth to soften the bitter in my culture we ferment it so we get the leaves and then boil it down once we boil it in water we pour milk and then we cook it down with the milk and then every day you pour milk and warm it up with it for about a week or more. Owen, that food is so good. <laughs> it, the bitter is delicious. And we eat it with ugali. It makes me salivate just thinking about it. And I actually asked my mom how they used to do it traditionally. In the traditional African homes, you have clay pots. And you would have your different vegetables because a lot of our vegetables were fermented because we had cows as well. And so you had cows, you had milk. So you had cream from those, from the milk and all that. So you'd had a pot that just had this one vegetable and you would eat it down until it was finished and they were all in a line. So you had quite the array of traditional fermented vegetables. Yeah. And all fermented in cow's milk? All, when you do the fermentation, yes, with milk, cow's milk. So does it get to a sour flavor? Yes, but because you're warming it up every day, it cuts, I think the bitter and the, like the, so, the sugars in the plant and the heat and the entire process, it's not sour. It has a little bit, but not an overwhelming sour. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it ferments, but you're every day basically killing the microorganisms, the fermentation organisms. Kind of. Some percentage of them. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, I'd love to try that, because I've never tried a ferment like that before, with with dairy and with the heating process. Okay. Yeah, because like the way, so you cook the vegetables... And then you're letting it sit. And every day, while you're cooking your other stuff, you put it in the fire. And you add a little bit of milk to it. I don't know the mathematics of this, but I think my 
ancestors are just geniuses indigenous folks are just geniuses because there are so many things because they didn't have refrigeration you know um so that was a way of preserving the food too yeah so if you have this whole array of ferments mm -hmm. does that mean each meal you can kind of have these little dollops of different ferments or they they took turns because it takes let me say I started with this we'll eat this one when this one is finished the next one will be ready the next one will be ready so they are in succession mm. yes you just have it ready because it takes time but they are usually so good some people will go and start eating them before they are ready ready I <laughs> Some people. Yeah, but like in the process of fermenting, the vegetables break down too. So they, they get softer. Um, the sizes break down as well. And then they can say, Apoth. <laughs> yes. So this deck or chinsaga, we've harvested, this you harvested, another. this is another one of the plants you adopted on the farm yes. as an ancestral plant. Yes. And maybe we can hear from the plant a little bit. There, let's hear how it sounds at this stage where all the pods are dried. And let's even maybe experiment with different ways of getting the seeds out. What are we hearing right now? That is me removing the shell. I wouldn't really call it the shell, but I am hulling, hulling, hulling or husking. Okay. <laughs> I'm removing the seeds from the pod and I'm doing that with my hands. I'm just, they're all dry and very easy to come apart and they are beautiful. The seeds are black and kind of like tiny, tiny, tiny snail shells, mm -hmm. almost. Very, very tiny. They look so beautiful. Yeah, and then what can I say about deck? I don't know what happened to your seeds because something came to attack them. Yes, deck is... So Cleome, that's the genus of this plant, and it's in, I actually can't remember the family name, but it's in the same order as brassicas, as the cabbages. And so when all of the brassicas and cabbage relatives came out of our field, we have a pest here called the harlequin bug, which is a shield bug, a stink bug relative. And it loves cabbages, and we've removed them all when we harvested the seeds, so it jumps onto the nearest relatives, which in our field are Deck, or Cleome, and Moringa. They're both in the same order, believe it or not, as cabbages. Moringa as well? It is. Now, Chinsaga and Moringa are not in the same family. They're not that closely related, but they're in the same order. So the harlequin bugs will jump on both of them and destroy their leaves. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Because it's so bit, like sometimes you wonder, just because of the nature of the plant, that the bugs would stay away, but okay. Now well, they find it delicious too. <laughs> <laughs> like we do. <laughs> this is a, Brian, my kid and I go to the park a lot near our house, 
and we have there's ornamental cleome there and every time we go we both harvest the seeds into our hands and put them in little leaf pouches and bring them home and scatter them around the neighborhood and it's just such an easy seed to process to harvest and process we'll like slap the pods into our hands or he likes to take one by one like you just did mm. and it's just such a fun seed to process it really is it really is these little hollow pods full of these cute little snail shell seeds. <laughs> ah, I don't know what I can say, but it's magical. <laughs> well, why don't we try to put this inside of this tarp mm-hmm. in a way yeah. that protects it and keeps the seeds enclosed, and then we can hit it with these tomato stakes and okay. see how quickly the seeds will come out. Okay, we've put the chinsaga inside of the tarp, and now, uh, what, Koth, what are you doing? Um, kneeling on them <laughs> to reduce the size drastically before I start hitting them, so to compact them. Yes, and you have one chinsaga pocket right on your hat. <laughs> <laughs> It reminds me of this morning when you got here and you were emptying your sweatshirt pocket and it was full of marigold seeds <laughs> <laughs> that you had harvested in the middle of the no. night from a street planting. You can't see a seed and let it go. <laughs> You're a compulsory seed keeper. Yeah, it's, it, it's the way, you know. I tell people that right now I'm the richest I have ever been because I have so many seeds that I just collect, even seeds I don't know, um, from different places I see them, and I just collect them. Yeah, so I'm very rich right now. Yeah, it's a beautiful relationship to the plant world. Yes, it is. And so now we are going to show you how we harvest. We have the Chinsaga inside a tarp and I'm using a wooden stick and I'm just going to hit it like that let's I just had the had the microphone inside of there with the seeds. Let's see what's underneath. Oh wow. Thousands of seeds. Thousands of seeds. Oh wow. Oh, this is the eggs of the harlequin bug mixed in. So is this dead though? Yeah, it won't survive. If, even if they hatch, they won't have anything to eat. It can still hatch? Maybe. It might not because it, it's dry. It's dry. You can see there's lots of them here. They're arranged in these little rows. They look like little striped black and white barrels. Oh, wow. Like me, I get fascinated with things like this. Like now I'm tempted to keep this as a souvenir. <laughs> You're welcome to all of the harlequin bug eggs you want. So now, like even though we just mashed this, there's still a lot of seeds in them. Yes. And a part of me wants to just carry them up 
and kind of like shake them. release some of the seeds i don't know how efficient that is but i think it's great and then you can flip the whole thing and yeah. and then people can just keep whacking it keep whacking it yes it's beautiful what's your favorite method Owen? what we're doing like i i like that you're spinning this pile of pods around mm -hmm. i would wrap it again mm -hmm. with the tarp and just keep whacking until you feel like you've got the majority of the seeds without driving yourself crazy because there's a lot of seeds in there already and this is not, this is one of many harvests yeah that is true but um you have you see you have to do it several times right because like let me just open a few people and show you whether or not we get seeds from them but like you see, for me, I've never seen the seeds harvested in this quantity. Some seeds more than others, where you will just go and find people hanging them actually upside down inside the kitchens or outside the kitchens. Like different people have different methods of keeping seeds. And we, we hung these upside down in the basement, right? You harvested the full branches of the deck of the Chinsaga and you bundled them up with a string and hung them for weeks to dry in the basement. Yes, that was fun to watch. <laughs> and we actually trialed a couple ways. You also spent quite a lot of time harvesting pod by pod or branch by branch early in the season mm -hmm. so that we could test their germination rates separately to see what it means to harvest a whole plant at the fairly dry stage versus individual pods or individual branches. Yes. I'm keen to see what, how that turns out. Yeah, we'll see. We've done similar tests with other plants. Yeah. And a lot of times it's very similar germination rate, but yeah. it'll be interesting. Okay. Moringa. Moringa olefera. Oh, moringa. <laughs> there is moringa olefera and there is moringa stenopatella. They say Moringa stenopatella does very well in places like the African continent. The stenopatella has bigger leaves and the seed pod is white. The oleifera is brown. And I found out about Moringa when I was going down the rabbit hole of changing my diet. And it's, you know, at first you're like, oh, it's superfood. Oh, let's go crazy about Moringa. At this point, I didn't even know Moringa grew at home. So I bought Moringa seeds and decided to plant them in, let me say, like an acre piece of land. I didn't know anything about growing food. I was just like, let's plant Moringa because Moringa is going to save the world because of the, nutri the, the nutrient-dense capacity of this plant. But then it didn't do well. I don't think a single tree, only one or two of them survived because I grew them in a wetland. Moringa does well in very... And that's different because it also grows in Asia and I've seen it grow in very lush spaces. Um, they like heat. And it's very proliferous. And so I learned 
that moringa grows at home when i started seeing moringa trees everywhere close to lake victoria in kisumu which is the second largest city in kenya also a city by lake victoria and in mombasa which is on the coast of kenya and in dar es salaam tanzania moringa is like the neem tree the mwarubaini tree they are everywhere but our people don't eat them our people don't eat them like that because it just grows everywhere so that was my experience with moringa okay but i love this tree because moringa grows so easily but oh i went to visit a relative of mine in mwanza tanzania and she had this tree in her backyard and i was like in behind her house i was like oh you have moringa do you eat moringa you know so i was just going in on all the benefits of moringa and then she said do you know where i learned about moringa i was like no and she was like she learned about moringa from my grandmother my mom's mom who visited her and would take moringa make tea from the leaves and everything she would cook the vegetables she would just harvest the leaves right there so she learned about moringa from my grandma and i don't know where my grandma learned about moringa you get wow. so maybe it grew in her village wow that's amazing you know like i learned about moringa over here with all these food addicts <laughs> health food addicts in america i adopted it thinking oh it's so new and grand and then here i am my grandmother knew about it <laughs> it's a traditional medicine <laughs> yes yeah so it's just like how plants travel too it's fascinating so how does your relative use it my relative doesn't even use it hmm. they know it's there the one who learned from your grandma I think she only used it for like a few you know following grandma's presents that people fall out of them. I know in Kenya right now you can buy the moringa powder. So when people are unwell, then they look for things and mostly they use it as a powder where they just make a tea. I cook with it. I make tea. When I cook vegetables, I once I'm done cooking my veggies, and i have the fresh leaves i'll put them there last minute by itself the powder is very strong it doesn't taste good yeah it's a very intense flavor yes. i sometimes will eat the leaves yes. just because it's so interesting yes. but it is intense it's very intense i eat the seeds mm-hmm. and the seeds i found out i could eat from my neighbor she she has a shop in newark she's from bukina faso so she tells me they eat three seeds a day for reasons of just keeping the system flush mm-hmm. your face <coughs> is telling it all yeah this <laughs> the leaf i can't figure out how to describe the flavor it's it's kind of bitter almost astringent mhm tastes very healthy though very it's a very grassy. green grassy <laughs> <laughs> it's true it is kind of grassy tasting yeah I've eaten the seeds too. They sell them in West African shops mm-hmm. and that's actually where a lot of our seeds that we grow come from. Mhm. Moringa will not 
make seeds here. They'll they won't even make seeds in North Florida. Mm. They'll make seeds in South, in Florida. South Florida. So we have to source the seeds from here or there, and a lot of times I get them from West African exactly. shops as a food or as a medicine, and they grow, mm-hmm. usually. So I'll get you seeds from Kenya too to see if there's any difference, and then. If you go to an Indian or Asian grocery store, you'll actually find them selling the leaves because they eat the leaves. And then the seed pods, while they're still green, they call them drumsticks. Mm -hmm. They cook the the drumsticks. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. My father-in-law in in Mississippi, actually, I think it's even on our episode where we interviewed them, Mm -hmm. finally got seed pods that mm-hmm. were ripe mm-hmm. in, in the Delta and their seeds had come from their trip to Ghana ah. from a tree that was had ripe seeds Ooh. and so he was able to do it in the Delta by bringing in the plants over the winter to the barn, to the barn. and then bringing them out again in big pots for us we these that were here that are here that are probably 10 feet at least tall mm-hmm. grew from seeds this year they grow so fast they grow very fast mm-hmm. they grow very very fast do you find that they struggle here because it's wetter i'm not sure because i've only seen my own plants really mm-hmm. and my in-laws in mississippi and they all i think they do pretty well and this year luckily the harlequin bugs have not eaten them mm-hmm. But they will start to decline rapidly now that the nights are cooler. Yes, they like heat. Moringa is a heat-loving plant. Bambara groundnuts. Vigna subterranea. The bambara, you call them bambara? Peanuts. Bambara groundnuts. Groundnuts. And I, I learned about them from you before I went home because you told me about them and then as I was traveling through western Kenya on my way heading into Uganda I stopped by the cereal market there and they had them like three different varieties of them so you you introduced me to them and then I go and I find them at home you know I was like oh no we don't eat this we don't have this and then here I am constantly just being blown away by you know Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the Moringa again. It's like the Moringa again. Yeah, so we do have Bambara groundnuts. You can see they don't love it here. Mm -mm. We've been growing them for, I've been growing them for maybe eight or nine years. And this is a probably 10 or 12 different varieties that we're growing together in hopes that eventually they really start to acclimate more to our climate with the genetic diversity. And um, the the rodents have already started eating them. You can see the empty shells over there, mm-hmm. but they're premature. Mm-hmm. So we have to just allow the rodents to eat some while the rest mature. Do you think mulching them will help them get over the cold nights? I think so, but then the rodents would live right ah, at the rodents. food source. Okay, I understand you. So we try to grow them and the peanuts, which are right next door here, away from areas that the rodents can hide, which is very hard to do on a farm. But it's partly why the dahlia row is a couple rows away, you know, while the other tall crops are a couple rows away at least, just Mm -hmm. because those hawks and stuff will hunt them, or they'll feel like they're vulnerable. Yes. Yes. Okay. So we're just always experimenting. We decided not to irrigate them a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. 
that they did better without irrigation? Drought. Oh yes, like here when we open it, you can see that. The, so this one means the rats were trying to get to this already, right? Mm, it might, it might be. To grow out like that. Yeah, it might be that they already dug some up that were riper underneath. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so these, just like peanuts, will grow these pegs, they call them, which come down from the fertilized flower and go underground and become the, the embryo that, or the ovary that ripens into the seed. And this is Vigna subterranea, so it's the same genus as the cowpea. It's another African species. Yes, beautiful. Okay, let me ask you a few more questions. Thank you so much for showing us your plant relatives, <laughs> your plant friends. You're welcome. I'm inspired to find out more so I can share more stories with you when I return. Oh, I love that. So how do you imagine, how do you hope that your time here at True Love Seeds will help you on your journey? All I can say is it has helped me a lot. <laughs> like, I tell you this all the time, like, oh, and every time I come here, I come to life. Um, but not just because I'm in a beautiful environment with beautiful people doing this beautiful thing called seed keeping. The practical, you know, understanding how to lay the garden, how to prepare them, understanding the need to space things out in a particular way. So just the practical, systematic way of growing, you know, because if you want to grow these things to eventually give you seeds, you need to do it systematically. That wasn't a part of my system. I'm very... Let's throw the seeds. (laughs) It gives order to my way of doing things. And so at home, everything I'm doing, I feel like it's geared towards taking it back home. And also now learning from my people how they've done things and then bringing it all together to grow food, save seeds, share skills with one another. So I have the land. I'm digging a well right now because I learned it's very important for you to have water. Water, 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 water. I've mastered, let me not say mastered because soil scientists will come after me, but I feel like I've mastered building soil because the past few years that was my focus. So I know how to build soil so I don't have to buy it. Water. I'm digging a well. The space is there. The rest is just gathering the seeds, gathering the people, and doing the work. How will you gather the people? The people will come because my people are so curious. And given the nature of who I am, too, I talk to everybody. You know, I let people in. So I'm not worried about that. But the only thing is because people are already gardening. They want to know what are you doing differently. So if they see something working or they see something different, there's a natural curiosity that we have as humans to improve. But I'll also do it through technology because I think it's very important for us to start documenting our own stories with our own faces and voices 
and bodies. So that's where technology comes in handy because I want to share what we are doing, not just for us, but for generations to come. I want the elders to know that their stories are valid. So what you're doing really, documenting them, doing their thing, and then them seeing themselves. So video format, you know, where we speak, we do these things, and then we see ourselves doing it, and then we share it to the world, you know, in all these beautiful platforms that are out here for us. Yes, I've really enjoyed when you've been back home following your Instagram lives <laughs> at Village Alien, right? <laughs> Can you tell me what Village Alien means to you? Well, Village Alien, I feel like I'm an alien everywhere I go, you know. I'm an alien in America. I'm an alien back home because I left at such a tender age. My interests are so varied from the interests of my peers, especially at home, especially in the village. In the village, nobody wants the village life. They've lived in it. They know it so well, and I'm fascinated by it. So they don't understand, you know, why am I so passionate about these things? It's like I'm pulling people backwards. But I have experienced the top of the top because my experience in America has been in very wealthy communities in America. I don't want it. It's not complete for me. I still end up feeling so empty. So at home, village alien, I am an alien, you know? So it's like I want to convince my people, hey, this world that you're seeking out there, it's great. But let's find a way to make it happen right here. Because we have everything that we need here. We have the sunshine, we have the freedom, we have the community. Let's just get our resources together so we don't have to... Poverty is not a good thing, period. So there's a poverty in rural areas. And that can make anybody want to flee, you know, and go to cities or developed nations, western nations. So, yeah, I'm a village alien. <laughs> and I thank you for explaining that and your vision. Um, and I've enjoyed following your Instagram lives when you're back home, <laughs> going into the wild spaces, mm -hmm. seeing what plants are there, going onto your family gardens and farms and getting to see what that looks like. I wonder if you could take a moment to describe what your family growing practices are like now. Yes. So my dad, so this is how it is at home. My mom focuses on the kitchen garden. My dad focuses on the fruit trees. So when you get into the garden, the one, this is the one that's attached to the home. So like the upper level is the house and then you go in the lower level, which is the garden. So as you enter in, you would say it's kind of divided up in two, kind of the way you have the line in the middle of the garden. So there is that side and there's this side. And all along the sides, my dad has planted a variety of fruit trees. So he has several avocado trees, papayas, mangoes, oranges. He even tried to plant apple trees. They didn't do well. We're like, Dad, cut this thing down. This is not the place for this. He's refused to cut that apple tree. We've not even eaten a single apple. That tree has been there for 20 years, occupying space. 
<laughs> um, pomegranates, you know, lemons. So my dad has always loved fruit trees. And they farm like many people farm. So the cash crops, you'll find areas of the garden with corn and beans. You'll find other areas with sweet potatoes, other areas with cassava. Oh, now bananas. His teeth are getting weak, so he's planting bananas everywhere. <laughs> oh, my dad. Anyway, and the way they farm, it's still the way that I don't like. You know, where it's a lot of tilling. And I'm like, this is so much work for what you're getting out. But I try to show them. They don't follow through. You know, they don't follow through. So that's why, again, I'm like, I need to have my space to do my thing and then show them that it's possible because people get stuck to what they know. Yeah. So during the season, they'll go, they'll till, they'll plant the seeds, they'll germinate, and then they'll go to weed again. And then, you know, so there's not a lot in the way of building of soil happening slowly slowly they kind of get it but not entirely but for somebody just randomly going there you'll be like oh this is beautiful this is lush there are fruit trees and bananas everywhere yes but you're not eating fruit trees ev fruits every day you know you need your staples <laughs> you need those things to be growing <laughs> every day yeah so can you paint a picture of your dream farm oh my dream farm. <laughs> my dream farm. My dream farm. Wow. I have this vision in my head. You know, I've, I kind of have adopted, uh, I've become a landscape designer over the years because I've designed over 15, maybe 30 different garden designs in my head and they change each time. So my landscape, my garden is filled with flowers and herbs and aromatics around our traditional houses. So they'll be within the, within the farm, there'll be traditional houses. And around the immediate vicinity of the house, there'll be herbs. And then there'll be pockets all around the perimeter that have fruit trees, kind of like orchards, yeah, around the perimeter. At the far end of the garden will be left to be a wild space, and there'll be beehives over there for the intruders to meet, <laughs> to, to meet their fate. <laughs> and then... We will grow everything that we are able to grow. You know, it, it's, it's not just a garden. It's, it's a whole space that accommodates so many activities like skill sharing, storytelling, with food also growing around us. So we are abundant. We are abundant with the food. We are abundant with the people and the seeds and... Yeah, I see it so clearly. So clearly. 
and because now it's under works, like I have the exact image in my head of what's happening. We are digging a well, and on top of the well, I'll build a structure. So there'll be the well, it'll be like a gazebo type, so you can sit around it. And then on the second level will be a circular room that's just open. So on rainy days, we can chill there doing seed work, processing, plant starting. Someone can sleep there too, we'll have classes. And then the third level will be the water tanks. And then the top will just be an open area so you can see everything from that level. <laughs> I can really see it. You can see it? Yeah, yeah. Will, will you build the house? Mm-hmm. I'm looking structure. For, yeah, I'm looking for a builder right now. Yeah, but the well is going. We've gotten to maybe 30 feet down, and we're still digging. Yeah. <laughs> that is really beautiful. You're welcome. I tell you to move. Move over there when these people keep stressing you up. <laughs> Just pack your bags and come. We'll find a way to get the seeds to the people who need them. <laughs> I'll consider it. Consider it. <laughs> yeah. Nice. And will you be there full time or will you continue to go back and forth? I think as time is moving on, I'll be there more than here. But I also like America and because a lot of my work will be focused and geared in the village. At some point, I think you just need to continue being exposed to the changes that are happening in the world and it can be hard if you're in the village full time. So in addition to being there and traveling a lot of Kenya, I love the US for many reasons. You know, there are just so many diverse viewpoints that no idea is too crazy. So this is my getaway space in the summers. Yeah. Well, then I hope you'll always visit us. Always. Count on me. <laughs> Thank you for all of the joy and wisdom and laughter and songs that you bring to our farm and to our community. Yeah, no, thank you. And you're welcome. It's been a joy. This is home for me. So wherever you are, wherever you move, I'll be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Akat. Thank you, Owen. <laughs> Thank you so much again to my friend, Akoff. And thank you for listening and sharing this episode of Seeds and Their People with your loved ones. Please be sure to share this episode with someone you love and subscribe to our show in your favorite podcast app. And thank you also for helping our seed keeping and storytelling work by leaving us a review and also ordering seeds, t-shirts, and more from our website trueloveseeds.com and again please join our patreon at patreon.com slash trueloveseeds your support keeps the episodes coming and remember keeping seeds is an act of true love for our ancestors and our collective future god bless